Welcome to episode 4 of the AUENV233 Dirt on Soils podcast. Today we'll be discussing soil organic matter, but first, some new podcast theme music. Major learning outcomes for this topic include understanding soil carbon in the context of the global carbon budget, looking at the processes of carbon breakdown and integration into soil, describing the different soil carbon pools that exist, looking at the influence of soil organic matter on plant health, and finally looking at the influence of a warming climate, focusing specifically on Arctic environments which are characterized by permafrost soils. Let's start by exploring carbon. Carbon is the foundation of all life. Carbon is the basis of molecules ranging from cellulose to chlorophyll and makes up most living tissues. Carbon atoms for living tissues are arranged into chains or rings and associated with many other elements. Carbon usually makes up about one half of soil organic matter. And soil organic matter, although it's a small percentage overall of the soil, it has a large influence on processes such as cation exchange capacity, water capacity, and impacting global carbon balances. Slide four shows a diagram representing the global carbon cycle, specifically emphasizing pools of carbon which interact with the atmosphere. The numbers in the boxes indicate pentagrams, or 10 to the 15 grams of carbon stored in the major pools. As we can see, soil contains more carbon than vegetation and atmosphere combined, almost double. Here we focus on organic carbons, but know that there can be substantial amounts of inorganic carbon, such as carbonate rocks, as well. Overall, at any one given time, we estimate that the soil contains approximately 3,000 petagrams of carbon. About one-third of this exists at depths below one meter. Of course, carbon is not equally distributed amongst all types of soils. The map on slide 5 shows that there are some areas in Canada that have much higher soil organic carbon masses than others. Plant residues are the principal material undergoing decomposition in soils. Because of this, they are the primary source of soil organic matter. Green plant tissues contain about 60-90% water by weight. If plant tissues are dried to remove all water, analysis of the dry matter remaining shows that on a mass basis, the dry matter consists mostly, at least 90-95%, of carbon, oxygen, and hydrogen. Now we're going to look at how decomposition in organic soils takes place. Decomposition in organic soils follows four major steps. The first, oxidation, the second, release, the third, synthesis, and the fourth, protection. Generally, mechanical shredding must take place first before these processes can be efficient so that microbes, which are primarily driving these reactions, have small pieces to operate upon. The major decomposition step of oxidation refers to the addition of oxygen to carbon and hydrogen plant materials. This results in the production of carbon dioxide, water, and energy, as well as increasing decomposer biomass. Slide 8 shows a great figure to explore this process. On the x-axis, we're looking at the passage of time from when fresh residues were added to when carbon from the residues has either decomposed or stabilized and is not breaking down anymore. The top graphic shows soil organism populations, or equivalently, the amount of CO2 that's being released. And the bottom graphic reveals the amount of organic substance in the soil. Arrows in the bottom graph refer to transfer of carbon among different components 
the first thing we notice is that once fresh residues have been added, there's actually no change for some amount of time. This represents the period of time when shredding of that material needs to take place before microbes can start acting. In the top graph, we can notice differences between microorganisms that are classified as K-strategists or R-strategists. K-strategists are microorganisms with an affinity for resistant substances. They have a low population, but constant. Whereas R-strategists are considered opportunist or colonizing organisms and increase their population rapidly once we have new materials introduced to the ecosystem. Soon, we can see the total microbial activity is at its peak and the resulting microbial biomass is increasing significantly. This microbial activity is producing tremendous amounts of carbon dioxide, which is featured as the white part of the lower graph. At this point, microbes might account for up to one-sixth of organic matter in the soil. Notably, during this high amount of microbial activity, we actually see a slight decrease in the soil humus. This is known as the priming effect. It's because the microbes are so active they're both incorporating and breaking down compounds in the original tissue, but also stimulating the breakdown of some of the more protected soil organic matter. Here it's important to note K-strategists peak after R-strategists decline. This is because R-strategists are feeding on easy to digest carbon molecules, whereas K-strategists are breaking down harder to degrade components such as cellulose and lignin. Here we notice that the humus level is actually increasing as this total microbial activity is decreasing as now this carbon is released into the soil. So at the far right side of the lower graph, we can see that overall the soil humic content has increased, microbial biomass has remained the same, and compounds in the original tissue are almost completely broken down, although some are protected and not able to be broken down by organisms. Now that we have a better grasp on the overall process, let's look at some of the impacts on the rates of decomposition and mineralization in the soil profile. First are the environmental conditions present in the soil. Maximum microbial activity requires sufficient soil moisture. Optimal is at or slightly above field capacity in a soil. This is about 60% water content. Additionally, microbes respond well with warm temperatures. We can see that microbe activity levels increase up to about 35 degrees and start decreasing afterwards. We see the highest decrease in microbial rates at temperatures above 38 degrees. Finally, for pH, the optimum is near 7. However, microbial activity is able to continue down to acidic pHs of around 5. The second major impact on the rates of decomposition are the quality of the added residues. We need to consider if the residues are added at the surface or if they're incorporated into the soil profile. There's more consistent moisture and temperature and less risk of runoff if the residues are incorporated, although there is an increased risk of leaching to lower soil levels. Recall that most of the microbial activity that's taking place here happens within 30 centimeters of the surface of the soil. A second consideration is the size of the residues added. Of course, we also mean shredding the materials down into usable components, but also the size of the molecules that are incorporated. Molecules such as glucose and sucrose are much smaller than those like cellulose, tannins, or lignans and this results in them being very difficult to break down versus smaller components. Beyond size of those compounds, we also need to consider what they're made of. Smaller compounds are generally more carbon and less hydrogen, oxygen, and very little nitrogen, phosphorus, or sulfur. Whereas larger molecules, again, looking at the tannins and lignans, contain many more of these compounds. This means that we can see that sugars, starches, and simple proteins are much easier to break down than cellulose, which is again much easier to break down than lignans and phenolic compounds. As we spoke about earlier, 
are selected microbes are more likely to break down these easy plant residues, there are case-selected microbes in the soil that are capable of breaking down more complex tissues. Major consideration of makeup of these components is the carbon to nitrogen ratio of the residues. So why is carbon to nitrogen ratio important? One is that there's very limited soil nitrogen versus carbon, and so there's competition for what is available. The second is that the availability of nitrogen can actually determine the rate of decay and nitrogen availability, a positive feedback cycle. For example, soil microbes are eight parts carbon for every one part nitrogen. A third is incorporated, so they basically need to find one gram of nitrogen for every 24 grams of carbon. Different types of plant materials present different ratios of carbon and nitrogen, although generally as plants mature, carbon and nitrogen ratios increase. We can see this in the graphic on slide 13, where substances with higher carbon-nitrogen ratios decay slower than those with lower carbon-nitrogen ratios. Now that we've stepped through the rates of decomposition and mineralization, let's look at the genesis of soil organic matter itself. What is soil organic matter? Is it the same as soil organic carbon? In general, soil organic matter represents about two times soil organic carbon. This would mean that soil organic matter is about half carbon by weight. There are two important categories of soil organic matter. One is labile carbon. This is easy to change and changes on short timescales, months to years. The other is humus, which is stabilized carbon. This remains in the soil for long periods, decades to centuries, and is relatively resistant. If we were to take a business analogy to this, we would consider labile carbon to be cash flow and humus to be capital. The graphic on slide 14 reveals the different pools of soil organic carbon and the links between them. Important links include the dissolved organic carbon, orange box in the middle, and looking at sorption and desorption between humus and labile carbon. We can also see plant litter with presence of fire becomes char, which is a more protected or stabilized organic matter. We also see the presence of enzymes, which are really impacting labile carbon and not necessarily having a huge impact on that stabilized organic carbon or humus. It's important to understand that char is not created from high intensity fires, but rather from smoldering and charring under low oxygen conditions. These are very common in traditional grasslands. It's not complete combustion, but it breaks down organic materials into their charred forms, and you can see pictures of it on slide 15. Some environments can have 40 to 50% of soil organic carbon in this char form. And it's really important in those environments because it has a high exchange capacity, a really high porosity, and a large surface area. It's also extremely stable in the soil carbon component. When we think about soil organic matter, what we really want to understand is the amount that is present in our different soils and also the quality of that organic matter. Often, the presence of active versus passive organic matter is determined more by environmental conditions than anything else. As we saw earlier, rates of decomposition increase with warming, and so warming passive organic matter soils can lead to soil turnover rates similar to active organic matter. There are methods that exist to differentiate between these pools, and our understanding of what is a resistant pool and an easily decomposed pool of soil carbon has contributed to a lot more accurate models of soil change under a warming climate. Slide 18 reveals the impacts of management and cultivation on these different pools of organic matter. Here we can see plant residues in green, active organic matter in light brown, and our stabilized and protected organic matter, or humus, in dark brown. 
And we can see at the start of cultivation, there's a decrease in all three pools, although stabilized and protected humus decreases less. And we can see that overall our total soil organic matter drops quite precipitously. On the x-axis, we're looking at the time after the start of cultivation. So 50 to 60 years in, we can see that active organic matter has decreased from just over 80% to down to around 50%. Additionally, if we look 100 years after the start of cultivation, when organic matter management was improved, or maybe we put the land back into native vegetation, we can see that these pools of carbon increase significantly, but it's not the passive organic carbon, it's actually the active organic matter which first increases. And again, we actually see an increase in plant residues as well because we're not removing those or tilling those into the soil. When we think about soil organic matter, we need to think of it kind of like a bank account. It's a balance between gains and losses. Carbon in is coming from plant litters and residues, animal waste, imported bioproducts, um, root deposition, root residues that are breaking down, and that's inserting carbon into our organic matter bank account. Carbon out happens through oxidation, loss of CO2, removal, erosion, leaching of organic carbon. Really what we're interested in here is the residence time of this carbon. So how long does carbon remain in our bank account? Two things can impact that, sequestration and sources and sinks. And so how those sources and sinks behave dictate the stability of our soil organic matter. And slide 20 really reveals a number of different management practices that can have um, an impact on the inputs and losses and practices that can both maximize and minimize the amount of carbon that's stored in our soils. So a lot of focus is obviously paid to managed ecosystems, but what about natural ecosystems? Well, there are a couple of examples provided on slide 21. Here we can see that when we're talking about forests, there's a greater amount of standing biomass, and this is carbon that's stored in woody tissues such as the trees. Organic matter oxidation is actually much slower in this forest environment. We generally have greater leaching but less erosion because of that standing biomass. In grasslands we see a large role of plant root biomass where between 60 to 80 percent of the biomass is actually below ground. With the large amount of root biomass it decays slowly and so soil organic carbon is distributed more uniformly than in forests. Additionally, grasslands are generally impacted by frequent fire, and so the presence of char in these soils is really important. Finally, we can look at wetlands. Wetlands have very high productivity, but generally experience a lack of oxygen, and so they have limited microbial decomposition. If we look at the map of soil organic carbon mass in, across Canada on slide 22, we can see the presence of all three of these natural ecosystems. High areas of soil organic carbon mass are in northern soils um, where we see wetlands. We can also compare this map back to earlier maps from this course when we see impact from different soil orders, temperatures, moistures, and soil textures. Remember that when it comes to moisture, the carbon-nitrogen ratio is higher in higher rainfall and more leached areas. And so generally we would expect to see that moisture effect on soil organic carbon as well. The influence of temperature on soil organic carbon can be seen in the top figure on slide 23. The balance between plant production and biological oxidation of organic matter determines the effect that temperature has upon this organic matter accumulation. Shaded areas indicate organic matter accumulation under aerobic on the left and anaerobic on the right conditions. Soil organic matter will accumulate to higher levels in cool climates, 
especially in waterlogged anaerobic soils, such as we see in wetlands in northern Canada. The second figure on slide 23 shows the influence of mineral textures on the amount of organic carbon. And what we can see is that as we increase our percentage of silt and clay, we have a direct increase in the amount of organic carbon content. This is due to the presence of more surface area and the ability of clay minerals to stabilize more organic carbon in the soil. Given this discussion about different pools of carbon located in the soil, we really want to understand what would the impact be of a warming climate on soils and what is the fate of that soil carbon? We'll look into those issues next episode. So that concludes episode four of the AUENV 233 Dirt on Soils podcast. See you next time. Welcome to episode 5 of the AUENV 233 Dirt on Soils podcast. Today we're going to be exploring the impact of climate change on soils with a specific focus on Arctic regions and permafrost. But first, let's hear from our friends, the Red Hot Chili Peppers. The first thing to point out in this topic is that climate change is happening and that the major cause of this is human activity, both by emissions of carbon and also reduction of potential carbon sinks by land transformation. Figure on slide 26 drives home the point about global temperature increasing. What we're looking at here are temperature anomalies. So this compares the average temperature of each year to the mean temperature for the entire 20th century. If the temperature of that year is warmer, then you see a red bar. And if it's colder, then you see a blue bar. Temperatures are obviously uh, primarily in red since the 1980s. All of us have never experienced a colder than average year in the time we've been alive. And in fact, of course, this is representing global temperatures and we do have regional temperature differences. And when global temperature is increasing, there are some areas that are cooling and some areas that are warming faster. Areas in Canada are warming at about twice the rate globally. And again, it's important to recognize that these changes are being driven by human impacts. Yes, there has been climate change before. However, the rate of change and the speed at which these changes are taking place are unseen in the geologic record. 
monitoring of northern hemispheric CO2 records at Mauna Loa Observatory in Hawaii have shown a continuous increase over time. And we can actually see that the mean rates of increase of CO2 are going upwards, not downwards. So the atmospheric concentrations of greenhouse gas are increasing, don't really show signs of slowing down at the moment, although we are seeing promising signs from having shut down everything for the last two weeks. And so what we're interested here are what are the impacts of this warming on soils? What we expect to see are changing balances between gains and losses of carbon to the soil fraction. And we have to understand that there's a feedback between the atmosphere and the soil that's mediated through plants. If we recall to the start of this topic, soil contains a huge amount of carbon, and some of that carbon is available to the atmosphere through breakdown of plant material. What we're really interested in is understanding the active versus stable fractions of soil organic matter. If more carbon moves into an active fraction of soil organic matter, it could in theory be released into the atmosphere, thus driving more warming. Considering our knowledge about these soil stores of carbon, several potential solutions to mitigate any additional release of carbon from soils could include things like reforestation, conversion of cultivated land to perennial vegetation, reducing tillage, so moving to a zero till or no till or low till agricultural treatments. We can use diverse crop rotations and cover crops, taking into account how each of those crops incorporates carbon into the soil, but also how it breaks down and the carbon-nitrogen ratios of those crops and how they would feed bacterial breakdown. We can talk about integrated fertility management. What we're really looking at is introducing crops with more and deeper roots to really lock that soil carbon away into that non-active component. The scale of impact here needs to be both local, regional, and national. The figure on slide 30 reveals comparisons between no-till and plow-till management options on a soil profile. And what we can see is that in the top 10 to 15 centimeters, there's a large increase in the amount of soil organic carbon that would be retained in the soil under no-till agriculture. However, at depths below that, we see some differences where we might actually lose soil organic carbon. The biggest thing to take away from this graph is that 90% of the data that we know about management of agricultural systems is based in the top 20 centimeters of the soil. We really don't know as much about um, depths below 25 centimeters down to about a meter, and that's where about 50% of the carbon is we are increasing the amount of studies to understand more about how changes in management could impact soils to depth. Overall, studies reveal that over a 50-year period, if we all move to no-till agriculture, we could offset 15 to 25% of CO2 emissions from that management practice. It's important to note that soils have a finite capacity for storing soil carbon. So really, this is not a silver bullet that provides the single solution to climate change, but it could buy time to afford other broader shifts in how we approach managing our carbon emissions. One important climate change topic to consider is the production of biofuels. Soils are obviously directly impacted because they provide the resources to grow these biofuels. Biofuels seem very attractive because they're both renewable and carbon neutral. Carbon neutral meaning that the CO2 emitted into the atmosphere when they were used 
was taken out of the atmosphere to produce more biofuel feedstock. Traditionally, biofuels are specifically ethanol, which is corn crops, and there are questions about if they actually produce more energy than that consumed to grow these crops. If we think about it, we need a certain quality of crop, and that requires fertilizers, and potentially transitioning from the best soils that are supporting agriculture to, to produce fuels. So there's questions about if biofuels actually represent a solution. Additionally, there are concerns that in this production of biofuels, we were removing all parts of the plant and all crop residues to produce more fuel. And this removal of residues would decrease soil organic matter if all of that's removed from the fields. So given several of the maps that we saw earlier in the lecture about much of Canada's soil carbon mass being located in northern Canada, I'd like to look at climate change impacts on the Arctic. The Arctic is especially affected by climate change as temperatures are increasing much faster than in the rest of the globe. And this is mostly due to something called Arctic amplification. Arctic amplification um, is happening for a number of reasons. A major one is that as temperatures warm, we decrease the amount of ice and snow, which exposes darker land surfaces and absorbs more solar energy, thus creating a positive feedback loop. Additionally, more trapped energy goes directly into warming rather than into evaporation. The atmospheric layer that needs to warm is much shallower in the Arctic than other parts of the globe. And as sea ice retreats, we have solar heat being absorbed by the oceans, and that heat can be more easily transferred to the atmosphere. For all these reasons, we see rates of warming in the Arctic at three to four times global rates. And in Western North America, we've seen an increase in average annual temperatures on the order of about four degrees over the past 60 to 70 years. So for our course, we have to ask, why do we care about the Arctic in the context of soils? And the major reason is the presence of permafrost. Permafrost soils dominate northern Canadian soils, and thawing permafrost and the resulting microbial decomposition of previously frozen organic carbon, and this would have been carbon that is in the stable pool, is one of the most significant potential feedbacks from terrestrial ecosystems to the atmosphere in a changing climate. We can see that that release would impact local ecosystems, but would feed back into regional and global climate systems. That global picture is shared on slide 37, where we look at total carbon in the world's soils. And we can see that of the 2,400 gigatons of carbon in world soils, nearly half exists in permafrost-affected soils. Most of this is perennially frozen. It is that perennially frozen carbon that we're really worried about thawing and then becoming available to be broken down and released into the atmosphere. So let's investigate this idea of why there is so much organic carbon in permafrost soils. Recall that carbon accumulates in the soil when net primary productivity is greater than respiration. Slide 39 reveals pictures from um, a colleague who studies Arctic carbon fluxes from a number of locations above the tree line. And so we can see stations that are set up to measure those fluxes. And we can see stations in Iqaluit, Lake Hazen, which is on northern Ellesmere Island, and in Daring Lake, which is located in the central Northwest Territories. Each of these is located in a different characteristic Arctic environment. What we notice about all of those environments is they're dominated by low vegetation and don't have much above ground biomass. 
To understand why there is so much organic carbon in permafrost soils, we actually need to go below ground. In these Arctic environments, below ground processes of respiration and decomposition are really important. These include root respiration, along with mycorrhiza and other microfauna within the root zone, as well as soil micro and macrofauna that respire while consuming soil carbon. All of these result in the release of CO2. The other component we need to consider is net primary productivity, or NPP. This refers to the net production of organic carbon by plants, usually measured on an annual basis. This means it accounts for total growth both above and below ground. Recall that we would see carbon accumulate if net primary productivity is greater than respiration. A map of global NPP reveals a trend of decreasing productivity toward the poles. This is also the region of permafrost soils, and this is not a coincidence. Permafrost environments severely limit decomposition due to both temperature and moisture conditions. Figures on slide 42 show soil fluxes of CO2 under different temperatures and volumetric soil moistures. What we are likely to see in Arctic environments are low temperatures, annual air temperatures are just above zero, but below ground temperatures often remain closer to freezing. The top figure shows this would result in a very low flux of carbon, or release of carbon, due to limitations on biological activity in cold soils. Additionally, permafrost prevents drainage of water. For an example of how ice and frozen soil can prevent drainage, feel free to look at most Camrose area sidewalks right now. In the presence of permafrost, we would either see very low or very high water contents. Low water contents would be related to frozen soils in the winter, and high water contents would be related to the summer when we see a lot of melt water, but not very much drainage. With both of these, we would see very low release of carbon from the soil. This is due to overall anaerobic conditions that limit breakdown of organic carbon, especially when related to summer conditions. So how do these two factors relate to increasing carbon in these soils? Well, as we saw in lab number one, permafrost soils are also susceptible to cryoturbation. This means soil movement as a result of freeze-thaw processes. This process is key to why these soils are so rich in carbon. Typically, most soil carbon is retained near the top of the soil profile, usually within the top 50 to 60 centimeters. However, with freeze-thaw movements, carbon is cycled downward the highest concentrations of carbon are found near the permafrost table. But as this table moves over decades and centuries, carbon can be incorporated deeper and deeper and obviously left untouched, so it builds up. The result is extremely carbon-rich soils found in permafrost environments. So the question becomes, what are the future possibilities for these regions and the fate of these soils rich in soil carbon? Models generally agree that conditions will become warmer but there is potential that it could become either drier than present or wetter than present. Going back to our graphs, we can see that an increase in temperature would definitely increase the release of carbon from soils due to increased microbial activity. Increase in temperature would also thaw permafrost, increasing drainage, and potentially increasing aerobic conditions in the soil. At this point, we need to return to the concept of different pools of soil organic matter and how they are linked. Recall that we have a labile carbon pool, this is active soil carbon, which can be both released or stored incorporated on short-term timescales, usually within a couple of years. The other major pool is considered stabilized carbon, sometimes referred to as resistant or recalcitrant carbon. These pools are broken into slow and very slow based on rates of change. Slow is generally thought of in order of decades and very slow on the order of centuries. 
This traditional view of soil carbon pools, especially in Arctic soils, means that we would expect to see less ancient carbon be released under warming. However, recent studies in permafrost environments have started to reveal that these pools are not so stable. In fact, they suggest there is no such thing as resistant soil organic matter if the conditions are right for breakdown. The studies show there might be some slight delays for older carbon to become available or to decompose, but it is likely a difference of years, not centuries. Overall, this reveals that regulation by environmental conditions is paramount. Additionally, studies are finding that bacterial diversity is not very different in these Arctic environments than anywhere else. Taking all of this into account, a number of studies have estimated potential emissions of carbon from the permafrost. Slide number 48 shows results from eight of them. Important to note is the sheer size of potential emissions. They are measured in picograms of carbon. It's also important to note the time horizons of that change. Several of the models are broken down into 100-year time steps, both up to 2100, 2200, and 2300. Overall average is marked by the dotted line across all eight of these studies. In conclusion, we need to recognize the large role that soil plays in the carbon cycle. Although often overlooked, soils will be impacted by warming temperatures and changing climates. They will also provide potential feedbacks to the climate system. This is especially true in permafrost environments where impacts will depend on a number of factors. That concludes episode 5 of AUENV233, the Dirt on Soils podcast. Next up, we will be tackling soil acidity.